so, so good to have this opportunity to be able to share this topic with you guys. And like Adrian said, this topic is um, not an easy topic to talk about, but I absolutely love, love, love talking about God's beautiful plan for sexuality and why He actually does appeal to us in His Word to save sex for marriage. But what I actually love about God's plan for sexuality is that He's not saying save sexuality for marriage. He's saying save sex for marriage. And as sexual beings, as Christians that, you know, serve God, we get to own our sexuality whether we're having sex or not. We get to do it from a place of celebration and from a place of dignity and purity. But I did not know that. When I was a Christian, when I first got saved um, at the age of about 12, I had no idea about all of that. I had no idea that, you know, you could be a Christian and actually own your sexuality from a place of purity and celebration and honour and dignity. In my mind, I just figured, much like I'm sure many of you here think, that no sex before marriage, you don't talk about sex. Sex is taboo. And I had to go through a very, very long, crazy journey before I came to discover what God's beautiful plan for sexuality and sex actually was. And so I am going to share that journey with you all. And then I'm going to share with you why I truly believe that what God says in the Bible about saving sex for marriage, why it is such a gift and why it is worthy of pursuit. Even if you already have found yourself having sex, even if you've, you know, maybe some of you here are not Christian, so maybe you are sexually active. But my desire is that when you actually hear why God says what He says about sex and the beauty of actually saving it for marriage, that you will be encouraged to follow him in this area. And so I'm just gonna quickly pray before I dive in and share my story. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for every single precious one that is sitting here in this tent. Lord, I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for their lives and that you have a beautiful design for their sexuality. And Lord Jesus, I pray that as I share my story and as I talk about what you've done in my own life and why your word is so beautiful and worthy of pursuing, even in this area of sex, I pray that hearts would be changed. I pray that people would be encouraged and empowered. Lord, and I just ask, sweet Jesus, that you would absolutely have your way. So for me, I uh, grew up in East London and I actually grew up in a home that was a Hindu home. So my parents, they were Hindus and they raised us as Hindus. And they were quite um, conservative. They weren't like crazy, crazy strict, but we weren't allowed to have boyfriends. We weren't allowed to drink. We weren't allowed to smoke. We weren't allowed to stay out beyond um, a certain time. And we were raised with um, conservative values. You know, honour was huge in my family. Our our family reputation and not doing anything to bring shame on the family was like a big thing. And when I was growing up, this is before I became a Christian, although no one ever mentioned sex in my family, but there was just this innate awareness that sex was 
taboo and you don't have sex outside of marriage. Like I knew that. And because I didn't want to shame my family and what would happen because my dad was an alcoholic and so we used to tread around eggshells, you know, tread on eggshells every night when he would drink because if he drank, then he was going to get violent. And if the children had done something um, wrong, then he would end up beating my mum, especially if it was something around this whole area of boys um, or girls for my brothers. And so I was so um, conscious of you know, not doing anything that would bring shame on my family. And so for me, the idea of having a boyfriend, I wasn't going to have a boyfriend. The idea of having no sex until marriage, like that resonated with me because I came, you know, from an Indian culture. But things happened along the way that began to change my mind. And actually, I think so much of it was rooted in my own sexual brokenness. And it started way before I could do anything about it. It started when I was born, you know, because I came from this Indian family where boys had like a greater uh, respect and appreciation. And so when I was born, my dad wanted me to be a boy. And because I wasn't a boy, he ended up not coming to the hospital to see me for the first three days. And that really just instilled um, such a spirit of rejection in me from like, a newborn and I carried that with me for a long, long, long time. And what that then meant is as I got older, I went to, you know, carry this real sense of not being good enough. And and my dad, he never, even though he looked after us and even though he, you know, put food on the table and he loved us in the way that he knew how to love us, he was not tactile unless he was drunk. Um, He wouldn't tell us that he loved us. And so I never, ever heard my dad ever say the words to me that, Bobby, I love you. And so I grew up like seeking that validation elsewhere. That's one of the reasons why later on in life I became quite promiscuous because I was seeking that kind of validation from my father and I never received it. Other things that happened to me is I was molested quite young um, as a child. And so that awakened my sexuality in an illicit way. Um, I also, you know, from that time would start reading adult books at quite a young age. I would um, drink my dad's whiskey. I would sneak down in the middle of the night and um, smoke and and nick his his whiskey when he wasn't around. Also, because we were raised in like this Hindu family, like demons were normal to us. You know, they didn't, they weren't, I didn't know they were demons at the time, but I was used to going to prayer meetings where um, I would see people get possessed. It was just all part and part of pagan worship. And so I would see that, you know, people would be worshiping and worshiping and calling on different spirits and calling on like these different idols. And then they would become possessed and their eyes would be to gyrate and their hair, like would just their head would almost spin around. It wasn't, but it seemed like it, like the head would just be gyrating. And that for me was never normal, but it was common for me to see those things. And my mum, she would, um, she would be a very devout Hindu. So she would take us up to the mountains um, when we would go to India and we had to go to all these like different temples and, you know, to worship all of these idols. And so there was a lot of demonic 
presence in our family when we were growing up and it was just ordinary life. And, you know, when things weren't going well, there was talk of, you know, um, going to a fortune teller or, you know, casting certain spells or, you know, appeasing the gods to try and make things go better. And so that was like my background. And I would like think to myself, like, how can these idols, these half humans, these, you know, um, half animals, how did they create the world? Like, I would see my mum worshipping all of these statues and, and these um, pictures with, with flowers around them. And I would just be so confused because I'd be like, how can they hear our prayers? Like they're not, you know, they don't have eyes, they don't have ears, they're made out of stone, they're made out of clay. Like I don't understand, they're not alive. These were the things that would baffle me as a kid. And then when I was 12, someone told me about Jesus and someone told me that he was alive and this Christian God was a living saviour. And so as soon as I heard that, I was like, I wanna know this God. And so I started reading the gospels till like three o'clock every night. And I just couldn't put the, the, you know, the books of the gospels down. And I began to pray to this Jesus and I began to go to Sunday school and um, read the Bible and do Bible study. I used to do all of that. But by this stage, I was already pretty messed up. And even though I had met this living saviour, I never really understood what he had done for me. I just thought that because he's alive, I should worship this God. But I didn't realise that he'd given his life for me. I didn't realise that I didn't have to perform. I didn't realise that he loved me no matter what. Even if I didn't get the grades, even if I wasn't a good little Indian girl, even if I disappointed my parents, like... God would still love me. I didn't know any of that. I did not understand the grace of God. All that ended up happening at the age of 12 for me was that I transferred this religious approach that I had to the Hindu gods and I just transferred it to this Christian God. And what that then meant was that although in some ways I was changing as a 12 year old, but in many ways I was still very much leading the life that I had been leading before Jesus came to me. And the life that I was leading before Jesus came to me was very, very twisted. You know, like I said, I was drinking, I was smoking, I was sneaking out of my bedroom window. I was watching horrors, I was bunking school and all of this stuff still continued as a Christian. And I remember at the age of 13, just randomly out of the blue, I had this sex dream. And in this sex dream, I had an orgasm for the first time. And I'd never had a sex dream. I'd obviously never had an orgasm. But I remember after having that dream, like it being a vivid dream. And I remember feeling like this sense of pleasure that I had experienced. And then about two weeks later was the first ever time that I started masturbating. And it just happened randomly. It wasn't like I planned it. It literally just started. And so as a Christian, 
I was going to buy, I was reading my Bible, I was going to church, I was reciting scripture, you know, I understood about God, I understood all of that, but I was drinking and smoking and masturbating and I had a pornographic mind. And I was reading adult books and I believe all of that was rooted in the fact that I had all of like these um, Hindu idols influencing my mind and pagan worship and the fact that I was molested and the fact that opened the door to, you know, having this sex dream and then leading to masturbation. I didn't know any of those, you know, root uh, issues. I didn't know where they came from. I just knew that at the age of 13, I had a lot of stuff going on around me. And there I was caught up between this double life of trying to be a good Indian, trying to be a good Christian, but then also being quite wild and also being quite perverse in my mind. But For me, even at that point, the unpardonable sin was having a boyfriend. And so as long as I did not have a boyfriend, and as long as I could protect my mum from being beaten, and as long as I could protect my family from shame, I still thought I was quite a good girl. And my, and my, my desire was to protect my mum. And so no matter how many boys approached me, I always said no. But then at the age of 15, someone introduced me to R&B music. And up until that point, I wasn't really into music. I could just listen to whatever music was around. I didn't have any preference. But then someone introduces me to this new genre of music and I was obsessed. And so I started listening to R&B day and night. And within a very short space of time, my mind completely just transformed, but not in a good way. I found myself within about two months of constantly listening to R&B music, all I wanted to do was be sexually active. I didn't care about my mum anymore. I didn't care about my culture anymore, about protecting my my family or protecting my family honour. I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to have fun. I wanted to be sexually active. I wanted a boyfriend. And so... I remember at the age of 16, having my first boyfriend. And that was really just what made me so happy, as well as clubbing every single night of the week, even though I was now at fashion college and I had the opportunity to you know, study, to be a fashion designer. But all I wanted to do was just go out and party and have sex. And so that's really what became my focus. And obviously, as a Christian, there was no way that I could be doing all of that and, you know, still be a believer in Jesus. And so I ended up knocking Jesus on the head and like just couldn't deal with the shame, couldn't deal with the condemnation. I didn't want to deal with the guilt. And so I stopped being a Christian. And then I embarked on like a really just hedonistic lifestyle that actually just seemed quite ordinary to me. It's no different to many people live you know, as someone who, you know, is in the West, like to live the kind of lifestyle that I was living at the age of 16 is just ordinary life. And so I forgot about God and I just decided just to go after what makes me happy. And that, you know, 
unfolded into me getting pregnant, having an abortion, and then getting into smoking weed, getting into smoking class A drugs, and then having another abortion. And over time, you know, like my life just began to deteriorate. And at times I would still pray, but I wasn't a Christian anymore. And as my life really just spiraled out of control, the most wonderful thing happened, even though at the time I did not think it was wonderful. But my mum calls me up one day and she says to me that, Bobby, I've become a Christian. And it was insane. Like the whole time that I had been backslidden, the same woman who told me about Jesus when I was 12, she told my mum about Jesus when I was backslidden. And so that my mum began to pray for me. And as I'm like now, like very promiscuous by this stage now, you know, like I'm sleeping around and, you know, I'm very, just very confused and there's a lot of darkness in my life. And then one day my mum says to me, Bobby, come to my house. I'm having a prayer meeting. And so I went just to make her happy. I had no interest in going to a prayer meeting, but I decided to go. And when I went to this prayer meeting, I ended up having an encounter with God. And someone came up to me and they began to talk to me about Jesus. And I thought it was a come down from the drugs that I'd been taking the night before. And I just began to cry. And what I didn't realise is that in that moment, it was the Holy Spirit that was actually resting on me. And I remember going home that day and I remember knowing that I've met with God, but not being in any way moved to change my life in any way. And so on the outside, I continued doing the same thing. I continued taking class A drugs. I continued being being promiscuous. I continued smoking and drinking and doing all of the stuff and clubbing like crazy. Like that's all that I continued to do. But now it's like God had got under my skin because now when I'd be off my nut and I'd be out there like, you know, being in a, in a toilet, taking cocaine with someone or being at a party, all I would be talking about is God. And I'd be asking people like, do you have a relationship with God? Like, what do you think with God? And somehow he was right there and he was in my mind. And I remember like beginning to sense that I am really destroying my life. And the more I began to think about God, the more my mum would invite me to come to her church because I wasn't living at home. Um, And she would say like, Bobby, please come to my church. And so every so often I would go to her church and when I'd be there and I'd be in worship and I would just be singing these worship songs and I would just weep and I would cry and just for those like 20 minutes, I would feel clean and I would feel like righteous. I would feel like a glimpse of what could happen if I stopped living the life that I was living. But in that time, I was still very enslaved. You know, I didn't want to give up that life. You know, I still liked partying and I still had this void that I was trying to fill with the the drugs and the alcohol. And so I wasn't willing, you know, to become a Christian at that point. But when I would stand there and I would worship for a moment, I would experience peace and it would feel so good. And then I would go back home and then I would continue to live like my very, very reckless life. 
But then the more that I would go to church and the more that I would then go back home, the more God began to work in the inside of me. And I remember just deciding to start journal, journal to God again, the way that I used to when I used to be a Christian as a teenager. And so I began to talk to God again. And I began to ask him to help me, to help me, just help me because my life was such a mess. And I knew at that point that I needed God to rescue me. I knew from what I had known as a Christian when I was a child, I knew that if I continue going down this road that I am gonna destroy my life and I am gonna end up doing something so destructive. And so I remember recognising that I need to get saved. And so I would go to church and I remember I would go forward for an altar call and I knew that I needed a saviour, but I still wasn't willing to make Jesus my Lord. And so I would go forward for an altar call and there would always be parts of me when I'm responding to the altar call that I'd always have a backup plan. I always, at the back of my mind, thought that, well, there's no way I can really give up the drugs. And I mean, I am probably still gonna have sex. And, you know, I I, I hope that Jesus can change me, but deep down, I don't really wanna change. Like these are the thoughts that I would have at the back of my mind every single time I would go forward for an altar call. But in my mind now, I'd gone forward, I'd said the salvation prayer and now I was a Christian and God was beginning to show up for me. He was beginning to answer the prayers that I'd been journaling to Him. And so I ended up deciding that I am gonna be a Christian and I am gonna move back to my mum's house and I'm gonna try and get on the straight and narrow and I don't wanna die, I don't wanna go to hell, I'm gonna become a Christian and things are gonna change. But the thing was, I found Christianity so boring. It was so utterly boring compared to the life that I had known before. And so I would, you know, go to church and now I was a Christian and I got baptised and I would go to Bible study and I would do all of that stuff and I'd try not to have sex and I'd try not to masturbate and I'd try not to, you know, smoke or drink. And then I'd go about six weeks and I'd, to celebrate, I'd go out and get off my nut because I'd be like, woohoo, you know, I was good for six weeks because I was doing it all in my own strength. And that's what I kept doing for the next two and a half years. You know, I was trying to be a Christian and I, and I was having encounters with God and those encounters that I'd have or when I'd get prophetic words, like they were wonderful in that moment, but I'd always find myself like going back into the world. And then I'd repent and then I'd take communion and I'd beg God to forgive me. Then I'd go back into the world again. And the more I kept doing that, the darker it kept getting. And it just felt like I was being sucked into this prison because the Bible speaks about, you know, when, when demons get come out of someone, then those demons go into the dry places and they look for somewhere to settle. And when they don't find somewhere, they come back to that original person or that original place. And if they find it empty, then they bring seven deadlier demons. And so for me, those two and a half years where I actually became a Christian, but then I had one foot in the world and you know one foot in the kingdom, that was torturous because now I had deadlier demons that had come and you know they were dwelling in me as a Christian because I had opened the door to sin in such a radical way, because I was still in sexual sin, because I was still masturbating, because I was still drinking, because I was still smoking. And so now the enemy had legal right to come into my life. 
And it all culminated about two and a half years after I said my first altar call. And I remember by this point, I didn't know how to do this anymore. I was like, Jesus, I don't even wanna follow you anymore. I can't even do this. Like I'm done with this. I'm done with this prison. And I remember one Friday night, I was with some friends and they'd come over and we'd been drinking and and taking drugs and... um, They went and and I was in my bedroom and I could feel like I could feel oppression and I could feel all kinds of heaviness around me. And I just thought it was a bad trip. And so I was just waiting for the trip to finish. And then I was gonna go and brush my teeth. And then I felt it lift and I felt like, okay, I'm feeling a bit better now. So I'm gonna, in a minute, I'm gonna gonna get up and I'm just in a minute, in a minute, I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna get up. And as I'm just talking to myself that, Bobby, you need to get up and go and brush your teeth. Suddenly I had like this, attack. It was like a demonic attack. And it was just these waves and waves and waves of evil that went through me. And in that moment, it's like this horror that I had seen when I was 13. It just flashed before my eyes. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Like I'm literally going to die. And in that moment, like all of my sexual sin, it also flashed before me all of my sexual sin, all of the things that I had done when I'd violated my own body and I'd violated other people's bodies. And then all the prophetic words that I'd heard in the last two years, they came to my mind. And then I remember thinking to myself that, wow, if demons are real, then God must be real. And then I remember thinking to myself that it's too late because I realised in that moment that deep, deep, deep down, I doubted whether God was real. But in that moment, I knew that He was real. And I knew that what was happening to me was the consequences of not following this God. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, it's too late because now I'm gonna die. And then I heard, not audibly, but I sensed God saying into my heart that Bobby, this this spirit that is attacking you, it is the spirit of the world. This is the spirit that you have been playing with. It's the spirit that you keep leaving me for. It's the spirit that you are friends with and you keep going back to. And Bobby, this spirit, it hates you. It despises you. And in that moment, I realised that I didn't want anything to do with the spirit of the world. And I thought, you know what? If I'm gonna die, I'm going out with a bang. And I just started worshipping Jesus. And I lay there on my bed and I said to Satan, you can do whatever the hell you like. I don't even care. And I just started praising Jesus. And I kept praising Him. And I kept praising Him. And I kept praising Him. And I was crying my eyes out. I was thinking, I was going to die. But I just kept saying, God, you are sovereign. I praise your name and I praise your holy name. And then something changed. And then whatever had been there, it just lifted. And that encounter, God in his mercy and in his kindness, even though I did not deserve it, he let me have a new start. And after that encounter, that was it. I was like, I'm never going back to the world. I'm gonna fully surrender to Jesus. And I gave him my life. And this time, I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't have a plan B. My only plan was Jesus. My only plan was that I'm gonna live for Jesus. I'm gonna fully, wholly give my life to him. And I'm gonna serve him. And I'd done things my own way for 28 years and now I'm going to do things God's way 
And from that moment, I fully surrendered. And the thing that I found is when you actually surrender, when you don't have your own backup plans, when you actually fully surrender and say, Jesus, your will be done, not mine, it becomes so much easier. It becomes so much easier to live for Him. And I embarked on the most beautiful adventure with Him. I never touched a drug again. Promiscuity just broke off of me. Sexual sin just broke off of me. I never ever masturbated ever again. And in that encounter, as I began to live for God, following that encounter, I realised that I don't need men to validate me. I don't need sex to validate me. I don't need to go towards the things that I was looking for, for satisfaction. I just need Jesus. And so I embarked on the most beautiful love affair with Him. And I fell in love with Him. And He taught me so much. Like He taught me how to preserve this body. He taught me why sexuality is so precious and why we should cherish it. And as I embarked on like this 18 year love affair with him since the day that I actually gave my life to him. And I, even though I've been forgiven and even though, you know, his mercy was so wonderful and even though he has used my testimony, but I regret the fact that I gave away my sexuality in the way that I did. I regret that I did not cherish this body that he gave me. I regret that he's got such a beautiful plan for sex and for sexuality. And I regret that I did not trust him. And the beautiful thing is, it's never too late to trust him with our sexuality. Never too late. But what he has shown me in his word is that the way that I was navigating through my sexuality, it was such a low level version of the way that he has designed sex. You know, in the Bible, the word for sex is yada. It means to be fully known. And anything outside of that context of sex, when you are fully known, the Bible calls that zakab. In the New Testament, the same word is porneia, where we get the word pornography from, and fornication. And so every kind of sex that we have in this world that we think is just sex, we even give it the name of making love sometimes, God doesn't even call it sex. God calls it zakab. God, God calls it sexual disorder. And in the Bible, a, a description of Zakab is animals mating. And so what I, all these years, was thinking was sex. In God's eyes, that's like animals mating. It's crazy. But God's word for sex is the word yada, which is used 950 times in the Bible. And it means to be known. In the deepest, deepest way to be so transparent, it means to be so free and to fully accept and to be fully accepted and to love unconditionally and to cherish. That's what Yada means. And you can have a Yada relationship with family, with covenant friendships, but the most intimate way you have a Yada relationship, the most intimate way on earth that you have yada is through sex. And that's why God's word for yada is 
sorry, that's why God's word for sex is yada. Because the way that God has designed sex is that you only have sex in an environment where you are fully known, where you are fully loved and fully accepted and honoured and cherished and you can be transparent and that person's not just going to leave you. They're not going to give up on you. They're going to stay with you no matter what. And the only really... um, suitable context for that environment is marriage. And so the way that God has designed sex is yada only happens in marriage. So in God's definition in the Bible, sex and marriage are completely inseparable. So when God talks about yada, when he talks about sex in the Bible, he always talks about it in the context of marriage. And in Genesis 4.1, it says, Adam knew Eve. Adam yarded Eve. Okay, that means that Adam had sex with Eve. And Adam and Eve, they were married. And so in the Bible, in Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what we're reading here is that a man leaves his mother and his father and then cleaves to his wife, meaning marriage, and they become one flesh. So they yard at each other and become one flesh. So the Bible literally teaches marriage, sex intertwined. The way I was having sex and the way that the world teaches us that you can have sex as a standalone. But the Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible says marriage and sex completely intertwined with one another. And this word cleave is so important because that is what helps you to intertwine with each other as a married couple. This word cleave, it means to be glued to. It means to be attached to. It means to be tied to. It means to pursue. And this isn't just a spiritual term. This is actually a neurological term principle as well. Because scientists, guys, this is mental, but scientists discovered about 15 to 20 years ago that humans are created with bonding mechanisms. And these bonding mechanisms help you to be loyal to the person that you are going to cleave to in marriage, in long-term relationships. And the way that that happens is these bonding chemicals, they are neurochemicals like oxytocin, vasopressin, dopamine. Oxytocin is a bonding chemical that actually helps you to bond. If you're a mother, it helps you to bond to your child. Vasopressin, if you're a father, it helps you to bond to your child. Um, And they're called like the the, um, cuddle hormones because it helps you to attach to someone. And then you've got dopamine, which is like a, a real pleasure hormone. And the way that God has designed it is in marriage, when a husband and wife come together, all those amazing, glorious bonding chemicals they're going to release and they're going to feel so good and you're going to have the most amazing orgasm and your brain actually changes while you're having all of these amazing, you know, chemicals that are firing and wiring together and they're reprogramming your brain. So your brain is being programmed to want to have sex with your spouse. And every single time you have an orgasm, your brain is like, ka-ching, that is a reward. And I want to do that again and again and again 
men and God designed it so that you would be loyal to your spouse that way when you have all these feel-good hormones and your spouse, you know, their memory gets etched in your brain and that would help you stay loyal. Like God did that. God created all of these wonderful bonding mechanisms so husband and wives could stay loyal to each other. And this is also how soul ties are established. God, when you know, uh, marital sex takes place, you have godly soul ties where they cleave to one another, where they're knitted together. What I was doing is I was having sex outside of marriage and so I was making soul ties with every single person that I was having sex with and I was cleaving to them and I was being attached to them even though they weren't my spouse. But the way that God has designed it is that you cleave to the person that you're going to be married to and you cleave to them neurologically, you cleave to them emotionally, you cleave to them physically and spiritually because when you have sex with someone, you enter into a covenant with them. And a covenant is a pledge, it's a vow. And the strongest kind of covenant is a blood covenant. And marriage is a blood covenant. And this is why virginity, guys, is so crucial. And if you're not a virgin the same way I'm not a virgin, if you're not a virgin, please be so released and be so blessed. Like God will forgive you the same way He forgave me. And I know that there are people that have had sex outside of marriage and you've lost your virginity and that's totally fine. But... The way God designed it is that two virgins come together for the first time. And in marriage, when they have sex, that's the marriage vow. Sex is the very marriage vow. And they have sex and they're virgins and the woman's hymen breaks. And when it breaks, it sheds blood and it cuts a blood covenant. And so that blood being mingled, that literally seals the husband and wife in a blood covenant forever, till death do us part. That's why weddings say the things that they say because it's a blood covenant. That's why in a wedding ceremony, you have so many things that symbolise a blood covenant because marriage is a blood covenant. And the reason this is so crucial, I can't go into all the details, but just to summarise, the reason a blood covenant is so crucial is because in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel. Israel was seen as God's wife, okay? Yahweh was had betrothed Israel to him. And he wanted Israel not just to be his chosen nation, he wanted Israel to be his actual wife. So he spiritually betrothed Israel to him. And in the Bible, it says that God says to Israel that in my mercy and in my unconditional love and in my stability and in my faithfulness to you, I want you to yard on me. I want you to be fully known by me. But Israel, Israel kept going off with other gods, going off with other spiritual lovers, worshipping idols. But God said, don't worry because I'm gonna make another covenant because he'd made a covenant with Israel. He said, I'm gonna make a new covenant and I'm gonna make a new covenant in due time. And the new covenant that God made was through Jesus. And when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he cut a blood covenant with his bride. 
When he hung on that cross, he cut a blood covenant with his bride. This is why as Christians, we are called the bride of Christ. Jesus has betrothed us to him as his bride and he shed his blood to initiate a blood covenant with us. And so as Christians, when we actually say yes to Jesus, we are saying yes to him as a bride. We are saying that, yes, Jesus, that as the bride, we are going to wait for you to come back for us as a spotless bride. And so our sexuality isn't just a case of, oh, you know, oh, it's just about me. It's just about who I choose to have sex with. Sex is a very symbol of the way Jesus shed his blood for his bride. This is why in the Bible, it says that, You know, marriage is a symbol of Jesus' relationship with a bride. And the way with his bride and the way that Jesus has designed sex is you only have sex with someone who loves you the way Christ loves the church. You only have sex with someone who's gonna stay with you till death. You only have sex with someone who's gonna take a bullet for you the way Jesus gave his life for us. And when we have sex out of that, we shortchange ourselves. It's not like God's like, I don't want you not to have sex before, I don't want you having sex before marriage, you know, because I'm super strict and, you know, because I'm very, very holy. He's saying that, don't you know how precious you are? Don't you know how beautiful your body is? Don't you know that I created you for the highest kind of love? The kind of love that that symbolises the love that Jesus has got for the bride. Don't settle for sex outside of that environment. Don't settle for something that's so less than what I have designed you for. The highest kind of love is available for you. And marriage is really the only thing that can really provide the kind of context that emulates the kind of love that Jesus has for his bride. But I just wanna add one last thing before we go into a Q&A. In the Bible, the word yada is not just used for sex. It's used for intimacy between us and God. Him being our bridegroom and us being his bride. He wants us to experience the most beautiful yada intimacy with Him. When you have that kind of relationship with Him, I am telling you guys, saving sex before marriage is a doddle. It really is. Because Jesus fully satisfies. He loves and He completes and He completely gives us everything we need in Him. And if you are satisfied in Him, if you see Him truly as the lover of your soul, then you will be able to reject every temptation that comes your way because it's not easy in a sexually immoral world to actually walk in sexual purity. But sexual purity doesn't come from rules. It doesn't come from what we do. It comes from being with Him, the pure one. It comes from being in love with Him. It comes from receiving His love. It comes from being loyal to Him and just saying yes to Him. And when we say yes to Him, it becomes so much easier to say no to all the other tempting stuff that everyone around you might be doing. And so I wanna encourage you, saving yourself for marriage, not only can you do it, but you can absolutely flourish while you do it. But even better than that, giving yourself to Jesus and enjoying the most beautiful relationship with Him, that is truly where satisfaction comes in. And so I wanna say to you, if you've already had sex, you've been sexually active, 
God's mercy is more than available. If you are someone in your life, you know what, I wanna walk in purity and I wanna trust God with my sexuality, then that is available for you. If you're thinking that, oh my gosh, I wanna do the right thing, but I always just get so tempted, His grace and His empowerment is available for you. I have not had sex, guys, for 16 years. And no word of a lie, it doesn't even bother me because I'm so fully satisfied in Christ. But one day I will have sex, guys, when I'm married and it's gonna be wonderful and it's gonna be worth the wait. But my first love is the Lord. And when He is your first love, not only will you be able to walk in sexual purity, but you will be such salt and light in this generation. You will be an answer to the sexually broken. People will look at you, your friends will look at you, family will look at you and say, why are you so secure? Why are you so confident? Why are you so full of life? How can you walk through your sexuality with such joy and such celebration and such purity and such dignity? You will be such a witness. And so I wanna pray for you as we step into the Q&A. And I just wanna bless you that the Lord Lord will truly reveal to you how glorious your sexuality is in Him. Lord, I thank You for these precious, precious ones. And I thank You for their sexuality. I thank You for their desires. I thank You for their longing for love. I thank You for their desire to wanna follow You, Lord Jesus. And I just wanna lift up every single person in this tent If there is anyone who's regretting maybe going too far, Lord, sexually, would you forgive them? Would you release your mercy over them right now, Lord God? Would you show them a new way, my King? Lord, anyone who's like, oh, I really wanna walk in purity. I don't know how to. Lord, I thank you that you will show your precious children how to walk in purity, Lord God. Father, if there are those that, you know, they're they're already caught up in stuff and they don't know how to get out, out of it. Lord, I just declare your absolute beautiful deliverance. Lord, you know the needs and the journey of every single person here. Above all, my sweet Saviour King, I pray, Lord Jesus, that every single person in this tent would know you intimately, that they would enjoy Yada intimacy with you first and foremost. And as they do that, Lord Jesus, that you would just change the way that they see sex and sexuality, that you would empower them, not just to completely walk in boldness and dignity and holiness and celebration of their own sexuality, but that they would be such salt and in this world, Lord, they will shine so bright, my King. I bless you and I thank you for every precious one in here. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. Bless you guys. So if you guys have got any questions, um, either from my testimony or from what I shared, then as Adrian said, that there are mics on either side. So please come forward, don't be shy. Imagine all the stuff that I've just bared and been so open and transparent with you guys. So please be bold and courageous and come to the front. Amazing, well done, yay. Bless you. Hi. Hello. Why do you think God gave us sexual desire at such a young age if we're not supposed to engage it at this age? And if marriage is defined as a man leaving his mother and father, why is that not the same definition for a couple that chooses to move in together? Okay, thank you so much. If I forget, like some of the questions that you've asked, remind me, okay? Um, So, 
The thing is, God did give us a sex drive for us to be able to enjoy. And He wants that sex drive to be fully enjoyed inside of marriage. And as we trust Him in our lives, we get to take that sex drive as an offering and give it to God. And we get to say that, God, even though I have sexual desires, and even though I would love to feel that sexual connection, I'm going to take my sex drive and I'm going to give it to you every day. And I'm going to ask you to help me steward it with holiness and with celebration. And so God actually uses our sex drive outside of marriage to be able to shape our character and teach us self-control and help us to surrender. So that's in terms of um, sexual desires. Um, And then you said about cohabiting. So I was living with someone for five years. And the thing is, if you live with someone, do you mean that you're going to be sexually active with them while you're living with them? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. So then that is still sex outside of marriage. And the thing is, when I mentioned that when two people come together in marriage, they make soul ties. And these soul ties are meant to be a blessing from God. And when we have sex outside of marriage, even if we're living with someone, we're still not actually covenantally, we're still not married to them. They're not our spouse because we haven't actually married them. So that is sex outside of marriage. And what then happens is then you end up making ungodly soul ties. And there's a lot of uh, baggage that comes with that because when you're not married to someone, but you're having sex with someone, even though you are living with them, you in the realm of the spirit, they are your husband or wife, but it is illegally. So then you open the door to darkness. And so God actually wants to protect us from those things. And the safest way to have sex is inside marriage, whether that comes to STDs, whether that's spiritually the safest way, emotionally the safest way. So when God says don't have sex outside of marriage, it's because He knows that that is actually the best way for you to enjoy sex and for your heart to be in a good place as well. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Hi. Hello. Um, Quick question. Um, If you're engaged and you want to actually have sex or anything, is that like a sin or something? Um, any, Any sex outside of marriage in terms of when you actually walk down the aisle and you say those vows... Any sex outside of that is still sin. And the thing is, until you've actually said your vows and until you both have actually got married, that is still someone else's spouse. That, that person doesn't belong to you as your spouse. You know, you guys are not married. And what you actually end up doing, some people can be like, um, oh, but we're definitely gonna get married. But what you end up then doing is you then end up not only having ungodly soul ties between yourselves and you end up opening the door to darkness, but then if you do then end up getting married, you then end up defiling, like violating your marital bed even once you are married. And so if anyone here is engaged to someone and you have engaged in sexual activity, then my advice would be just repent, ask God to forgive you, break off those soul ties, don't have sex again. And then that way, when you do get married, if you do get married, then it will be a blessing to your 
sexual intimacy after marriage and you will be able to really enjoy each other in God's eyes without any sin in the mix. Okay, thank you. Thank you, bless you. Hi. Hi. Um, are there any ways to like, um, to like stay like clean? Because like, I remember my mum telling me that God says that our body's like a temple or something. I love that you asked that question. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, loads of ways, but I'll try and keep it super short. For a start, think about what you're watching. Um, and, you know, because what we're watching, it has sexual cues in there. What we're watching determines what we're thinking. And so think about what you're watching. Think about um, what you're reading. Think about what you're exposing your eyes and your ears and your heart to. That's one thing. Um, Another thing is like identify where sexual cues are. Like where are your triggers? Where have you got things in your life where, you know, you're bound to kind of be tempted and ask God to show you what those things are and then close the door on those things. So it could be someone's house you always go to. It could be someone that you're friends with. It could be a place that you go to. It could be something that you watch. Ask God to show you those triggers. And then the brain, the way that our brain works is that if we reject a sexual cue, the brain will forget about it. So if you see, I don't know, a sexual image, like you're on TikTok or because sexual perversion is all over social media. So you really got to ask God, like, what should I be looking at? What should I, what account shall I follow? And if you see an image that is a bit like sexually uh, illicit, if you focus on it, your brain will be programmed to respond to that sexual cue. But if you keep your mind renewed with the Word of God, then you will be able to reject that sexual cue. You'll look at it and be like, nah, and you'll just turn away. Then your brain forgets about that sexual cue. So the biggest thing I'd say to you guys is stay in the Word of God. If you stay in the Word of God, then your spirit man directs your thoughts. But if you're not in the Bible, then your flesh, your body, your desires directs your thoughts. So get into the Word of God. That's the biggest thing I can tell you. Bless you. Thank you so much. Um, can we just go to this side? Yeah. Um, if your partner's already had like sex out of marriage, does that affect you? Um, sorry, sweetheart. Can you say it again? And can you say it really loud? If your partner's had sex out of marriage, does that affect you? No. If 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 he's repented and he's asked for forgiveness, then absolutely not. You can you know have a fresh start um, in your marriage. Just pray, ask God to get rid of any sin, repent, and it's all good. Bless you. Thank you. Um, it's a little bit of a controversial question, but is it still a sin if um, you engage in a sexual activity against your will before marriage? Is it still a sin if, if, um, if sexual activity has been forced on you? Yeah. Um, you are not at sin. You are definitely not at sin. And I, I want to be very sensitive when I respond to this because I don't want anyone to feel um, like the sin is on them. But the thing with sexual sin is the enemy, Satan, he will capitalize on sexual sin, whoever sin it might be. And so even though you might not be the one who was the one who caused the sexual sin, but what the enemy likes to do is he likes to use that to still 
be able to bring darkness into your life. So even though you might not be the one who caused the sexual sin, but it is important for you to ask God just to cleanse you and purify you and actually say that any doors that the enemy might try to have to me because of that sexual sin, Lord, would you close them? And then also it's important for you to forgive and release that person. So although it wasn't you who did it, but just for the sake of the enemy, not trying to capitalise on that, it's good to pray it and get rid of it so it can't affect you because it's traumatic enough as it is. Yeah? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, super quick. Guys, we've got three minutes. All right, hello. Hi. Uh, all right, my question goes like this. I heard you're talking about Adam and Eve, how they were joined together by sex. So sex becomes a... Uh, a way of engaging or maybe connecting as a, as a pair, right? It, it's a, sex is a symbol of a covenant that they've cut together. All right. So that being said, what other things can we consider when we are in a marriage that can keep the relationship together? Because other people are actually having that covenant, but at the end of the day, they're going to be breaking up and getting to divorce. What other things can we consider? Um, I, I, I don't know what you mean. Sorry, repeat that. All right, I'm saying other people, they are actually in that covenant as well, right? But they end up divorcing yes. as well. So that means this covenant is not the only thing that should be binding their relationship. So I want to know what other things. It is covenant, you know, because when, um, but obviously, you know, when, when God created Adam and Eve and he created marriage, he hadn't created divorce. But divorce, God allowed divorce to happen after he created marriage because of adultery. And so there are reasons why, you know, divorce does end up taking place and there's no condemnation if divorce has been um, in the mix. However, covenant is the thing that binds a husband and wife together. Everything they then pledge to do to one another or do for one another is because they are in a lifelong covenant together. That is the foundation. So if you end up divorcing, then you would then in most cases or in some cases you would get remarried and yes there are exceptions where you don't end up just having one covenant with one person but in God's eyes you would only have one covenant with one person at a time in marriage because sometimes a spouse might die you know lots of different things might happen where you might have to get remarried but the covenant is established through sex. Okay, guys, what we're going to do, we'll take one more question and then I will be down here at the front and I would love to answer any other questions that you might have or anything that you might want to speak to me about. So let's just take one more question from you. Um, So if sex is like a good thing or like a gift from God, why do you think certain Christians decide to remain celibate? Like, do you think that's good? Sorry, honey, can you repeat that? Why do certain Christians remain celibate if like, sex is a good thing that we've been given by God? Yeah, great question. The thing is, um, singleness is a gift the same way marriage is a gift. You know, so the Apostle Paul says that you can have the gift of singleness as well as, you know, marriage being a gift. And it goes back to what I was saying with Yada intimacy. You could be celibate your whole life and never have sex but be fully satisfied in God because God has made us as sexual beings, but we are not just sexual beings because we're having sex. 
We are sexual beings even when we're not having sex. And so if someone chooses to be celibate, they can still enjoy true intimacy with God without never having sex because that might be their offering before God and that might be what they sense God saying like the Apostle Paul was celibate. You know, they might sense God saying that in your life, the way you're gonna give me glory is you are gonna be celibate. Okay, 